Acts chapter 13. As I looked at uh, Acts chapter 13, I noticed that uh, really there are two commands or declarations that Jesus had made that sort of converge here in Acts chapter 13. One of them we find in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which was the when Jesus was ascending, he basically told the apostles that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So we have that declaration by Jesus. And then we have another declaration in verse 9, which is when he had saved the apostle Paul, the Saul, who became the apostle Paul, and he told him that he would be his chosen instrument to bear his name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And so we see those two declarations by Jesus kind of converge here in this passage today. We see them come together. For the first third of Acts, the focus was on the ministry to the Jews and the establishment of the church primarily in Jerusalem. That's been the focus primarily up until this point. However, in chapters 10 and 11, we saw this transition as the church kind of expanded out into Judea and Samaria. We saw that as the second part of Jesus' description of how the church would develop, first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then the rest of the earth. And so that middle section kind of transpired through Acts chapter 10 and 11. The first major event in that transition was the conversion of Cornelius. If you remember, Luke sort of steps his foot into that, and then he comes back and goes back to the Jews. You know, So he sort of did the story of Cornelius and then kind of came back to the Jews. It was like this mix going from Jews sort of into the discussion now of the Gentiles. And as part of that transition, we learned about Cornelius coming to Christ and his relatives, um, the first real Gentile converts. The second major event was the establishment of the Gentile church at Antioch, which we talked about the last couple of weeks. In our passage today, it sort of marks the end of that transition that took place. And so now we are fully focused by Luke in the book of Acts on the development of the Gentile church. So we've sort of moved away from a discussion of the establishment within the Jews in in, um, Jerusalem, Samaria, and uh, Judea. And almost the rest of the book now will be focused on the explosion of the church primarily among Gentiles. It doesn't mean we won't see Jews. We see plenty of that, and we'll see that discussed a little bit today. But the focus is primarily on us, Gentiles. And so we're going to see that. Um, We're in chapter 13. Um, We'll give a little bit of preliminary stuff here to sort of set the table, and we'll get into some of these verses here. But a couple of weeks ago, we learned about the establishment of the Gentile church at a place called Antioch. Most of the Jews who were scattered outside of Jerusalem, if you remember when the persecution happened after Stephen was stoned, It sent the Jews scrambling outside of Jerusalem, especially with the coming of Saul and the persecution that he brought. And so most of them were scattered outside of Jerusalem. And we know that the text tells us they all went out, and wherever they went, they preached the gospel. They took the gospel with them. However, what we also saw was that they focused primarily just on the Jews. In other words, Jews from Jerusalem getting sent out to what's called the Diaspora, took the gospel with them, but they pretty much just hung out with their Jewish brothers and sisters. So that's all they were really preaching the gospel to. A few men, however, we saw this the last couple of weeks, a few men from Cyprus and Cyrene decided to take the gospel specifically to the Gentiles in a place called Antioch. And we saw that that was really sort of the first evangelistic program, if you will, uh, coordinated effort 
to reach the Gentiles. Remember, Cornelius just sort of came about because the Holy Spirit moved Peter and moved Cornelius. Peter wasn't looking to go minister to the Gentiles. But these men, we don't know who they were, from Cyprus and Cyrene, took it upon themselves to specifically travel to Antioch with the mission of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, we talked about that city. It was a pretty important city. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. The population was about a half a million people, so 500,000 people or so. It was a major seaport. You had a lot of people coming in and out. It was a hub of all kinds of commerce. There was different cultures and religion, but primarily the city was mostly Roman slash Greek. It was Gentile for the most part. Now, it also had a fairly large population of Jews, probably the second largest population of Jews outside of Jerusalem, but for the most part, it was a Gentile city key, if you want to think about it that way, because of its place in that world. In fact, we even talked about how many refer to Antioch as the cradle of Christianity, because that's really where the church began to explode and reach out to the rest of the world. In our study of Acts chapter 11, the church at Antioch became just as important, maybe even more important, than the church at Jerusalem. I think I even may have made the comment that we here in this church might not be here had it not been for what happened and what the Lord did at Antioch. Because that was the beginning of the Gentile church. And I don't know of any Jewish folks in here, maybe some of you have some Jewish blood, um, but we're mostly Gentiles. And so it all began for us, if you will, at Antioch and what God did there. Now, as we look at that, we're going to see a number of important things. We're going to study this church of Antioch today. Um, there's a number of things that we actually learn about this Antioch church that kind of explains to us how God used it and maybe why he did. The first thing that we learn is that the Holy Spirit gifted the Antioch church with prophets and teachers. Look at uh, verse 1, chapter 13. Oops, I'm, I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I need to go back to Acts. That wouldn't have worked. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who, were called Ni- or who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manion, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. So aside from Saul and Barnabas, we really don't know anything about these other men, other than we're told that they were prophets and teachers. Now a prophet was somebody who was given the ability, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to speak... On behalf of God. God actually used a prophet to speak his words, to make them audible, or in some cases, written. And so it was God's way of speaking new truth, and sometimes future events, prophetic events, to the church. So prophets could basically reveal new biblical spiritual truth, which would be necessary during this New Testament period. Um, It could include delivering encouraging messages from God. We found that um, with Judas and Silas, they delivered a message to the church as a form of encouragement to the church. It was God's way of speaking to the church that Silas and Judas were at. It could also include future things. There was a prophet named Agabus. We find him in Acts chapter 11 and 21, where he basically told Paul what was going to happen to Paul. And so prophets had this role of, in many respects, being the mouthpiece for God. And we're told that there were prophets at Antioch. Now again, that would be important because there's many things in the New Testament that are revealed to us that weren't found in the Old Testament. And so prophets were necessary. They really have the same function they did in the Old Testament. Declaration of truth. That's how God communicated. Now the second group of people that Paul or that Luke mentions here are teachers. There were teachers also 
in Antioch. Now, a teacher was somebody who the Holy Spirit gifted with the ability to expound upon, expound upon what God had already revealed, whether it be the Old Testament or taking these new truths revealed by the prophets. As they learned them, they would then teach those things. And so you have both these prophets and these teachers. And according to Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, God specifically appointed prophets and teachers within the local churches for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. And so we see that here. God had reached down into the church at Antioch and through the work of the Holy Spirit had gifted men to be prophets and teachers primarily for the building up of this local body called Antioch. So the first thing we see is that they were equipped with some pretty important gifted individuals for the building up of that church. In many respects, you look at it as a form of preparation. God has something in mind for that church, much like he does every church, right? The second thing that we learn about this church at Antioch is that they were attentive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 2. It says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, to be attentive means to pay close attention to something. It's here that we see the Antioch church was sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leadings. I would say they were in tune, if you will, with the Holy Spirit. They could hear what he spoke. Now, the way Luke writes this, it looks as though he probably did so audibly. It's not real super clear. But either way, they understood what the Holy Spirit had spoken. Either the prophets spoke up, and that may probably be more likely that the prophets spoke, the Spirit has said, or it may have been that they audibly heard it. I don't know. But regardless, the Holy Spirit specifically says something to them and they're attentive to it. They hear it. I believe one of the reasons for that is because they were in tune with what the Spirit was saying because they were ministering and fasting to the Lord, it says. That idea of ministering to the Lord is simply a way of saying that they were serving the Lord. They were intent on doing what the Lord wanted them to do. It's used in the Old Testament, refer to people like Samuel and Aaron and the priests as they minister before the Lord. So ministering to the Lord meant they were serving Him. It's also used in the New Testament to describe how angels ministered to Jesus. They served him. It's also used of believers ministering to individuals. So they were serving the Lord at this time. It also says they were fasting. Now fasting was a religious ritual that was used to seek divine guidance and wisdom from the Lord. We saw that with Esther. If you remember the story of Esther years ago when we studied that. They fasted. They prayed. They're looking for wisdom. They're looking for God to act. And so you find that in this church, they were serving the Lord... And they were fasting, which means they were seeking direction from God as to what to do and how to do it. So the Antioch church was dedicated to serving the Lord and actively listening, seeking His guidance and direction. And that's when the Holy Spirit spoke to them. I wonder sometimes how many churches are actively listening. We have our agendas. We have our things that we want to do. Our own plans, our own purposes. Um... I've told you before my aversion sometimes when I get these notifications in the mail of new churches that are starting up. I used to just rejoice when I would see new churches being popped up all the places. But nowadays it's kind of funny because a lot of them I think to myself, what's the purpose behind this? I was, I've been getting these ads um, for a particular church that's starting up somewhere in Columbus area here. And um, I saw the, uh, I saw it again last night, the, the, video ad that the pastor's doing and I don't I mean I'm not trying to judge his motives but 
There was an awful lot of talk about the after party and the Disney characters and all the stuff that they're bringing in for this big party for their for their launch. And so I thought, I'll check out the website. There's not a single thing on their website that tells you anything about the church. There's a give button. And there's something about small groups. But there's nothing at all about Jesus Christ that I could even find on the website. Nothing. No mention of Jesus Christ. I, again, I'm not trying to judge them, but I sit back and I kind of go... Did the Holy Spirit speak to you and say, bring the Disney characters? And I, Does this sound judgmental? Am I crossing the line here, folks? I, I struggle with that only because sometimes I wonder how much we do without really just... Lord, what is it that you want us to do? What are you telling us to do? And so much of it is almost cookie cutter. This is the way we launch a new church today. You know, we've got to have the big events and the big... And, and many of those churches... If you look at them, a lot of bang out of the buck, and a lot of people show up. There's also a tremendous emphasis on fun. The pastor who's doing the video continues to talk about how much fun you're going to have, how much fun you're going to have. You go to the website, and it's, this is going to be a fun church. You know, and I'm thinking, I guess it doesn't sell to say, this is going to be a church you can come and suffer. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, you know. Um, and again, I know I can cross the line maybe sometimes with these comments, but I just use it as an example of trying to say, are we really attentive to what the Holy Spirit is saying we need to do? I sometimes wonder about that because I think we get all excited and I think the motives are in the right place, meaning they want to start a church, they want to reach people, they want people to go to church. I, you know, I know that's probably what's in their hearts. I just question whether or not they've sat down and really listened to the Holy Spirit maybe in terms of what He wants. Third thing that we learn about the church at Antioch was that they were obedient to the Holy Spirit's command. you got to first listen. Look at verse 13, or verse 3. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. I want you to think about this for a second. Saul and Barnabas were probably the two greatest earthly assets that the Antioch church had. And I say that very specific, or very carefully. They were probably the two most important earthly um, assets that that church had. And the reason I say that is when Barnabas arrived in Antioch, he was apparently quickly overwhelmed by the number of new disciples and the need to mentor and to disciple them. And so he immediately goes to Tarsus and he finds Saul and he brings Saul back and they spend the next year then mentoring, teaching, discipling these new believers. That was their purpose, their goal. And as you can imagine, um, as that church exploded, we're told they taught considerable numbers. And the fact that the Antioch church becomes an extremely important church in the New Testament, it becomes Paul and Barnabas' headquarters, if you will, for their, every time they would go out on a missionary journey, they launch from there and then they come back there. Um, as, I, as I said, the, uh, historians have referred to it as the cradle of Christianity. Um, and a lot of it was because of the ministry of Barnabas and Saul, who became Paul. They were extremely important to this church. They were the primary teachers. Paul was a prophet, could speak truth. And now the Holy Spirit is saying, send him away. Send him out. Let him go somewhere else. You can imagine that that church's first response could easily have been, What? How can we let Paul and Barnabas go? They're our pastors. They're our shepherds. 
They're responsible for much of what's happened here. Imagine the, the prophets and teachers that were there were probably taught by Paul and Barnabas. I remember when I left to go to seminary and I left Pastor Krenz behind. There was a certain amount of trepidation. I'm leaving my mentor. My, I've learned so much from this man. Then when I came back for an internship and he told me that he was going to be retiring and moving up to northern Wisconsin to plant another church, my heart sank. You know? What's going to happen to this church? Where's it going to go after this? Imagine what this church must have felt. But the Holy Spirit said, send them. And what did this church do? Sent them. Let them go. It reminds me of something I learned about um, Grace Polaris. Many of the Grace Brethren churches in central Ohio, in fact, I think most, in some respects, were offshoots of Grace Polaris. Pastor Jim's philosophy was, we'll send out our best. I remember when they had launched the um, Powell Church. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I heard somewhere between 500 and 1,000 people maybe had left Grace to go start that church. Hit them pretty hard financially. Hit a lot of the resources they had. People in ministry that they now had to find people to fill. But the philosophy was, send out our best. God will supply what we need. And I imagine that's what was going through this Antioch church. All right, the Holy Spirit wants us to send out our best. We'll send out our best. And God will supply the rest. And so they were willing to be obedient to the Holy Spirit, even though it might have gone against everything they personally felt or wanted. Before we move on, I want to look at verse 2 again. Go back up into verse 2. You notice that it says, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Three things I want to point out about this. The first thing we need to notice is that it's an imperative. The Holy Spirit gave them specific instructions, a command to send out Barnabas and Saul. didn't say, so what do you guys think? Should we send out Barnabas and Saul? You might consider it. Maybe got some substitutes if you want, if you don't feel... No, he said, do it. Send them out. It's an imperative. It's a command. Second thing, notice the repetition of the personal pronoun there. What does the Holy Spirit say? Set apart for who? Me. Set apart for me for the work what? Which I have called them to. Anytime you see a repetition of that personal pronoun, <laughs> tells us something. The Holy Spirit said, this is for me. Set them apart for my purposes. Finally, notice that the Holy Spirit had a specific mission in mind. Notice he says that he called Paul and Barnabas for specific work. For the work which I have called them. And so we see these three things. It's an imperative, it's a command, this repetition of me, I. And then finally, that it's the work, it's the mission, it's what I've called them to do. What that tells us is ultimately this. The Holy Spirit is the one in charge. He's the one that directs and dictates. And so that's what we see here. It's all about the Holy Spirit. And you see the church here, this is our takeaway, the church operates under the authority and the direction and the provision and even the commands of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was given to us as a helpmate to lead us and to guide us. But we are ultimately under the authority, the direction, the provision, and the command of the Holy Spirit. That's why we exist. That's why every church exists. This is not my church. 
This is not Dustin's church. This is not your church. We're all members. But this is the Holy Spirit's church. This is the church of the Lord. And we are under His divine direction and guidance. All through the Holy Spirit. This is ultimately Jesus Christ's church. And His agent is the Holy Spirit. This means that like the Antioch church, we need to be committed to actively seeking what it is that the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. We should be listening, seeking. Unfortunately, as I've mentioned, I think a lot of churches fall into the trap of consulting marketing firms and current trends and falling into the world's ways of doing things and to attract people and everything else and don't spend nearly enough time really honestly saying, are we listening to the Holy Spirit? It's unfortunate. But we find here that that's one of the hallmarks of this Antioch church. It's because, or it's for these reasons, I believe, that it became the cradle of Christianity. Why Paul and Barnabas made it their headquarters, if you will, their home church. Because they were willing to listen to the Holy Spirit, obey the Holy Spirit, send out their best, knowing that that's what the Holy Spirit demanded of them. And so that's what they did. So, let's continue on to the passage here. The Holy Spirit says, send out Saul and Barnabas. Luke reminds us of that in verse 4. If you look at verse 4 real quick, just the very first half of that verse. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, Luke now is emphasizing. The Holy Spirit has said, send them out. Luke's just reminding us. Remember, they're being sent out by the Holy Spirit. But they begin their mission in a place called Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 60 miles away from Antioch. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and sailed to a place, or sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, that's a little uh, city on the island of Cyprus, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. So they started in the city of Salamis, which probably was a port city, is what most research suggests. And um, it's basically where they would have landed, and so they just immediately start preaching the gospel right there. The island was mostly Gentiles, but um, Luke tells us that they first began preaching in the synagogues, which would have been mostly Jewish audience, maybe some Greek, God-fearing or God-fearing Greeks. But we notice, based on the rest of Paul's ministry, that this became Paul's pattern. He always wanted to start in the synagogues. That was his pattern. In fact. If you go to the end of the book of, of Acts, you find that even when he goes to Rome and he's imprisoned at Rome, the first thing he does there is he calls the Jewish leaders to him. That was Paul's pattern. He always began with the Jews, even when ministering among the Gentiles. It's pretty clear in this passage in the rest of Acts that the Spirit was sending Saul and Barnabas out to the remote parts of the earth Specifically to preach the gospels to Gentile or the gospel of Gentiles. So why did Paul start with the Jews? If he was to be a, a, a evangelist to the Gentiles, is he a little bit disobedient here? No, I don't believe so. In Romans chapter one verse sixteen, Paul wrote that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, but to the Jews first, and then also to the Greeks. He repeats something very similar in chapter 2 of Romans where he says there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's a pattern here. 
want you to look at Acts chapter 13 and verse 44. So it's not part of our passage today, but jump down to it. Verse 44 through 47. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, and they were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary, you catch that? It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, meaning you, the Jews. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy for external life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Now that's a specific instance. Paul was talking to that particular group of Jews and said, Okay, it was necessary for us to first come to you. You're God's chosen people. His plan was to deliver not just the Messiah, but also the gospel through you. So it was required, necessary, that we come to you first. Now that you're repudiating us, rejecting us, we'll now go to the Gentiles. And he was talking about that specific location. The next city, he'll go to the Jews again. And when they reject him, he'll go on to the Gentiles. So Paul always went to the Jews first. God's redemptive plan has always been to bring forgiveness and salvation through Israel. It's always been the plan. So it makes sense that Paul, a Jew, would go to them first. We also see that in the Gospel. Gospel, we're told that Jesus was sent to the house of Israel. His earthly ministry was almost exclusively to Israel. Gentile ministry came through the church. And so we see that pattern even with Jesus. Ultimately, the reason is, we get grafted in. Remember Paul said in Romans that us Gentiles get grafted into Israel. That's how Abraham would bless all the nations of the earth. So, as Paul and Barnabas make their way across the island, we see here in verse 6 and 7 that they encounter some opposition. This is pretty common, it's another theme. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the Pronskul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Paphos was the capital city at one point. It was on the west side of the island. Luke doesn't say anything about the success here among the Gentiles, which is kind of interesting. He doesn't mention how many Gentiles got saved. Uh, but they're preaching the gospel as they go across the island. And when they get to Paphos, they get this opposition from this guy named Bar-Jesus. He's a magician, basically a mystic, a sorcerer. Um, he's Jewish. says he was a false prophet, which means he misrepresented, misrepresented God. But he was a close advisor to the governor, the prosecutor there of Cyprus. So he's a pretty important man. He's kind of like a spiritual advisor, if you will. Well, when the governor hears about Saul and Barnabas, he summons them so that he can hear the word of God from them, we're told. He specifically wanted to hear what it was they were teaching. But Bar-Jesus actually tries to convince him then to reject the gospel. Look at verse 8. It says, but Elamus, that's the magician, that's Bar-Jesus, was opposing them, seeking to turn the Pronskul away from the faith. So he was directly opposing, contradicting Paul and Barnabas, doing everything he could to convince his governor, the one he served, that Paul and Barnabas were not telling the truth. Look at what Paul does in response. Verses 9 through 11. 
But Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went out seeking those who would not lead or who would lead him by the hand. Now there's a ton of irony here. I don't know if you caught it. It says Paul is full of the Spirit, but then he says the false prophet is full of deceit and fraud. Notice his name was Bar-Jesus, which means son of Joshua, but Paul actually calls him Hue Diabolu, which is son of the devil. So Paul's playing with his name a little bit here. Notice Paul uses some other irony here. He says, you're taking the straight ways of the Lord and you're making them crooked. To cap it off, the most ironic thing of all is that he suffered the same fate that Saul did when he opposed Jesus. Jesus took a sight for a short time. Paul or Saul was blind. And here, through the work of the Spirit, this man loses his sight as well and has to be led around by the hand by others. Same thing that Paul had to have done. This thing just drips with irony here. I'm sure Paul, I think the way sometimes these things work, is Paul probably could have called down any form of judgment on this man. It makes you wonder if he called down blindness because that happened to him and he was familiar with it. I don't know. Just an interesting thought. Look at the response of the governor when this happens, verse 12. Then the governor of the school. Believed, and he saw what it ha- when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, you remember, um, Luke said sort of the same thing about Simon the magician when he basically Luke had said he believed. But as we looked at that text, it became really pretty apparent that his belief was superficial, just on the surface. He was really more interested in getting this weird gift of the Spirit so he could go and you know promote his own magic skills and do this for other people and the response of Peter to him um, you have no part in this seems to indicate that Simon's faith wasn't real even though Luke said he believed we see the same thing in churches today people say I'm a believer and you know there's probably no real truth to that you know I shared with somebody the other day I hate it when I hear people say I'm a person of faith because that's like a red flag for me that's like yeah you're not a Christian because most Christians don't use that phrase We'll say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. I love Jesus. I'm a person of faith. You know, That's kind of like he believed he's a person of faith, right? Um, I believe in this context, however, that this individual probably had justifying faith. And the reason is, you notice, it says that the reason he believed wasn't just because of what he saw, but if you look at what it says in verse 12 there, He was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Which means, as he heard the gospel presented by Paul, it amazed him. It wasn't just the miracle itself. 
We don't see that with Simon. Simon was amazed by seeing this gift poured out, but then there doesn't seem to be anything else that suggests he was impressed by the teaching or the content of what was being taught. But this governor was impressed by the content of what was taught. He was amazed by the gospel. It's a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. God came down in human flesh while we were still sinners, still offering us grace and mercy, willing to put himself on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, your corruption. That's an amazing thing. And this governor was apparently amazed when he heard that. And so he says, or Luke says, he believed. What's our takeaway from that as we look at this passage? I think it's this. One of the takeaways is that I think this gives us a glimpse at the power of the gospel. Think about what's happening here. Um, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 that he wasn't ashamed of the gospel because it was the power of God to salvation for all who believe. The power of God. David wrote in Psalm 19 that the word of God has the power to restore the soul, to make wise the simple, to rejoice the heart, to enlighten the eyes, to convict mankind of sin. The word of God and the gospel is inherently powerful. Can rend somebody's heart in two, bring tremendous conviction, and then hope. That's the power of the gospel. It can convict the most stubborn individual like the Apostle Paul. Educated, popular, important, powerful. And yet it changed him. And so here we have this governor, Roman, Greek, we're not really sure, but he's a Roman governor, but Greek underpinnings probably, and has this advisor who's a sorcerer, spiritual guy, and he's probably heavily invested in all of that. We know that many governor or many Roman governors and persons that also believe they were godlike features or characters. Maybe this man struggled with some of that too. But here it is: the word of God being preached to him, and his right-hand advisor is doing everything he can to convince him that this is wrong. But what wins out? Two dudes who the governor didn't know show up on his doorstep on his island preaching about this dead guy Jesus that supposedly rose from the dead. And yet, against all the odds, it convicts his heart. I think sometimes we forget that. I think about one of the reasons I have this kind of aversion to um, some of what I see kind of going on in Christendom is because we try to rely on all these gimmicks sometimes to attract people and to make make it fun and I wonder if it's because we don't really believe that the gospel is as powerful as it really is I don't know again maybe I cross the line sometimes with my is it judgmentalism I don't know I struggle but we have to believe that the gospel is powerful. I've told you before, I got chased around for six months by some guy that just wanted to tell me about Jesus, and I wasn't having anything to do with it. But seeing Christ in his life 
And then hearing him tell me that I could have hope in Jesus Christ was all it took. Gospel is a powerful thing. Sometimes all we got to do is share it. Sometimes people reject it, but sometimes we're shocked and amazed because the most hardened of people can be softened by it, like this man. And so I think one of the things we see, and this one of the takeaways, is just the power of the gospel. And it's because of the one behind it. Is that not true? The Spirit can use that. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that it's enough to basically split joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and thoughts and intentions of man. It's like a double-edged sword. What's interesting about that is, biblically speaking, there's no difference between soul and spirit, biblically. Yet the Word can split them in two. Does that make sense? Just the way of the Hebrew, the author of Hebrews, almost describing the impossible. The, the, the gospel is so powerful and so sharp that he can even split soul and spirit, which really aren't two things. It's just a way of describing almost an impossible thing. I just think we see that here. The, the second takeaway I think we can take from these last few verses here is how precisely this passage matches what Jesus said about Paul at his conversion. Jesus told Paul that he'd be chosen to be used as an instrument by him to bear his name before Gentiles and kings, that's the governor, if you will, and all the sons of Israel. So here we have Saul and Barnabas, or Paul now and Barnabas, commissioned by the Holy Spirit to fulfill that mission. Jesus told Paul it'll happen. Paul temporarily goes off to Tarsus and takes advantage of that time to to teach or evangelize, whatever, but then out of the blue, the Holy Spirit says, okay, Jesus said it, now it's time to enact it. And so he sets Paul and Barnabas aside, sends them out into Gentile land, preaching in the synagogues, before a mix of Jews and Gentiles, before a governor. So all of those things become true of Saul, exactly as Jesus said they would. I think that's a great reminder that Jesus Christ has a plan and a purpose for building his church. He will raise up some, take down others, do what he sees fit to do. It's all about him. That's why the church exists. And so in this, and we'll wrap it up with this, in this passage today, what I, what I love about this is you have this church that's fairly new, made up of mostly Gentiles, Christ establishes it as part of his plan and his purpose and then begins to use it. And we see that one of the ways that he uses it as a church is because of their willingness to listen, to follow, to be obedient to the work of the Holy Spirit. That's got to be our mission here. Got to be listening. I don't know what tomorrow holds for Renew. All I know is that we're called to raise up disciples of Jesus Christ, to send them out into the world, and that's what we're going to try to do. But listening to the Holy Spirit. And we've tried to do that every step of the way. Um, none of us set out to start a church. We just want to be able to get believers together, have a place for our families, grow together, build relationships, grow as a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then go out and do the work of the ministry. So we need to remain attentive to the Holy Spirit and obedient to whatever the Holy Spirit is calling us to do, whether that's individuals or as a church. But as part of that, we also have to remember that the most important thing that we can do is be preachers of the gospel. Witness that. 
And that's where our power lies as a church. It's not in what we do. I mean, you know, we're small. We know that. There's probably things we could do. We could probably put up a big tent and, you know, maybe we have Marvel characters. Maybe that'd be more effective. You know, Dave, you like Marvel? I like Marvel, you know. Um, maybe draw some people in, right? But I've not been convinced that that's what God necessarily wants us to do. You know? Um, maybe there's more we can do sometimes if we want to grow the, the body here. But the reality of it is being attentive but um, to the Holy Spirit. But the most important thing is remembering that it's about the gospel. And that's where our power comes from as a small church family is when each one of us is able to go out and be the witness Christ wants us to be and pray for opportunities to share the good news of Christ with those around us, whether it's neighbors or coworkers or friends or family. And let God do the work. It's a powerful thing. But we've got to say it. We've got to be willing to share it. Not all of us are evangelists and gifting, right? But we're told to always be willing to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. We can all witness Christ, and God will use that because, again, the gospel is a powerful, powerful thing. But we've got to be willing to do that. We've got to be obedient. And so I'm just encouraged by that, reminded of that, because I'm not a gifted evangelist, folks. But God has given me some opportunities through work and through other things to be able to just open up. And I'm amazed sometimes that the people that I think are least likely to listen and talk are willing to talk, willing to listen. It's just up to the Spirit to do the work, right?